Hi everyone, my name is Mike Vinoli, Vice President of Marketing at Assure. Uh, today we're talking about a really important topic uh, around uh, overtime. So uh, overtime first became a thing, I think it's going back to 1928 with the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, but the rules around the thresholds where that must kick in have changed, right? Uh, 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 as times have changed and hours work and, and pay rates, et cetera. And so uh, there's, there's another change that's imminent. And so uh, really, really important that employers get ahead of this because you need to start thinking about how to, uh, uh, how to schedule for it, how to budget for it, how to plan for it. So my um, guest today to unpack this topic, if you're a regular listener of the show, you'll, you'll, you'll know Mary Simmons. Mary is our vice president of HR consulting at Assure. Uh, for the last eight years, she's been an adjunct professor at the New York Institute of Technology. Uh, prior to that, Mary is the director of HR uh, uh, consulting for a 55-year-old HR consulting law firm in New York. So uh, among many other jobs, uh, uh, welcome, Mary. Look forward to, to our discussion today. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. So, so do, I, do I have FLSA in 1828, right? And that's the origin of overtime as a law? It is. It is. Absolutely. And so there's a, there's a little bit more to it, right? So what we're talking about today, when we talk about the overtime rule, it's it's not only who is eligible for overtime, right? So that's the difference between exempt and non-exempt employees. Right. But I also just wanted to give a little clarity on when they're eligible for overtime. So when you talk about who is eligible, the individuals who are eligible for overtime are non-exempt employees. So your exempt employees who are paid salary are not eligible for overtime. And this gets a lot of employers into trouble, right? Because uh, designating somebody exempt versus non-exempt, a lot of times employers will go, oh, Mike wants to be paid a salary, so we're going to make him exempt. And there's so much more to it. And, and we on another webinar had discussed and gotten into a little bit more detail on this. But for our purposes today, employers need to remember that there's a primary duties test that will determine whether or not an employee is exempt. So this that's one of the things that they have to consider. And what that primary duties test does is says that 50% of that employee's time should be devoted to responsibilities that are in step with one of the three white collar exemptions. And there are other exemptions from overtime, but today we're really gonna focus on those three white collar exemptions. So that's the executive exemption, meaning that you direct two or more employees for the majority of your day, right? So 50% of the time is the standard for the Fair Labor Standards Act. And then of course for California, um, when they're talking duties, um, primary duties test, they're gonna say 51% of your time. And this is important because when we talk about the executive exemption, um, that and, and the administrative one that we're gonna talk about next are really overused by employers, right? And I'll give you a great example. Walmart stores had a big lawsuit because their managers that are out on the floor 
helping customers, stocking shelves, but also managing two or more people were exempt employees. And I'm sure you can, can see where this is going. It's a retail store. They work a lot of overtime and they were not receiving overtime because they were um, classified as exempt. But when the courts started looking at it, they said, they're not supervising these employees 50% of their time. They're supervising the employees about 10% of the time. They're, they're you know, maybe saying, hey, Mike, stock that shelf better. Or they're saying, you know, here's the schedule for the week. But the rest of the time, they were essentially doing the same duties as the other employees. So that executive exemption, you really need to be careful. Um, the, the Fair Labor Standards Act has a very long paper, you know, two, three pages long on other factors that come into effect to be have that executive exemption. And, you know, employers really, you know, I always say this, you can't contract around the law, right? You can't bend the law so that it fits your organization. You really need to stay in keeping with this. And I know I've said this before, Mike, but it it bears repeating wage and hour law uh, lawsuits outtrend discrimination lawsuits at least two to one. They are easy to prove. It's black and white, whether you paid me correctly or not. And a lot of other factors get into it. And and I and I think some of the other reasons, you know, when when we're helping an employer that happens to get you know, a Department of Labor audit, and they're looking at their pay practices, a lot of times it's it's straight up ignorance, right? These laws are difficult to understand. Uh, I think employers, you know, again, we always say they don't know what they don't know. I mean, how would you know that, you know, if somebody told you the executive exemption means somebody, you know, manages two or more people, you know, you'd make all your managers exempt. And that's simply, you know, not the way that we can do it. So the can, other, Mary, yeah. Can, can I ask a question for sort of cut in on you? Um, yeah. So for, for small, smaller employers, growing companies, you know, a lot of laws, there's an employee threshold, the uh, Affordable Care Act, more than 50 employees, uh, COBRA, 20 employees, et cetera. Is there an employee cutoff uh, for for over for Fair Labor Standards Act uh, uh, threshold, the executive exemption for overtime. This is for everybody, right? This is for everybody, and and that's I think what also gets you know some employers into trouble. You know they think they're you know I'm too small. You know I only have five employees. I'm going to make one person exempt. I mean I have to tell you when we do HR assessments, which is one of the things we like to do with new employers, right? We like to take the temperature of their yeah. HR policies and procedures and get them into compliance. I can't tell you how many employers a don't know, don't classify their employees exempt versus non-exempt. How many of them say, oh everybody's salary here they all want to know what they're making for the week so we pay them all salary right, right? which is right. another error if if you have non-exempt employees in in the mix right so yeah, again and, and I want to nail that down because your Walmart example was perfect because that's real life but of course but that, as a small business person we shouldn't be thinking oh that's Walmart that doesn't apply to me if I'm a retailer and I'm the owner 
and I'm, I'm a on the floor manager. I also, but uh, maybe I have two locations, uh, so I split time between the two. And so in each store, I have a store manager, but that store manager is also spending 80% of their time at the register stocking shelves and they're and they're directing people maybe in the daily stand-up or dare I say anything less than 50% of their time uh, <laughs> uh, directing those other two employees it doesn't matter that you're not Walmart. The, the law still applies to you, even though you've only got two employees or five employees. Correct. I mean, we, I have a bagel store that that I support. You know, he's got 10 employees, right? And it and it's okay to have that executive exemption and still ring the register and still put the bagels in the bag and, and give them to the clients. That's okay. You can do some non-exempt um, responsibilities, but it's the primary duties need to be uh, directing others. And then right. the next the next exemption I think really confuses people. And I, I think it's partly because of the title, which is the administrative exemption. And right. I'll give you the, the best example here is the office manager, right? So there are some positions where I could say to you, you know, and I try never to say always or never in, in human resources, but there are some positions that I could say to you are almost always exempt outside sales, almost always exempt inside sales, almost always non-exempt, right? And you hear me saying almost, right? Um, but when you come to the administrative exemption, I think of a, a lot of employers go, oh, my office manager has the administrative, she's doing administrative or he's doing administrative responsibilities or they're doing, you know, you know, ordering supplies and, and et cetera, and they're exempt. And what I'll tell you is that is one of the positions that I would never say always or never for the exemptions, because it looks so different for each employer. And that's why job descriptions are so important because my office manager is gonna do something different than the bagel store's office manager, than Walmart's office manager, right? They're all doing something a little bit different and they, to meet the exemption, have to exercise discretion and independent judgment of matters of importance for the organization. So I had an employer say to me, well, they order office supplies, Mary. That's really important. And I said, I understand that that's important. That's not going to meet the duties test. Okay. Um, that's not significant to the running of the organization. So administrative ex uh, exemption, think a uh, human resource manager, think your um, controller. Uh, so those are the types of positions that are going to have that administrative exemption. So then we move on to the professional exemption. And hey, Mary, can I, can I yeah. clarify a question on that? So your example, uh, if they simply ordered the office supplies, that's that's not uh, that doesn't meet the test. If they were the ones deciding which office supplies, which brands, how, what sizes, quantities, uh, which ones to use, not use, how they would be used, that would uh, would that kind of cross the threshold uh, for discretion and independent judgment? I would I would think more um, you know bigger picture like they choose the vendors that yeah. the organization uses 
and negotiates, right? Independent judgment. Yes. It negotiates the contracts with those vendors. So that's that's the way I, I you know, would want an employer to look at it. And again, you know, contracting around the law. If they're really not doing that, then they should be non-exempt. Does that make sense? Right. So if you as an owner have negotiated a deal with Staples to order all your supplies, your office manager ordering those supplies from Staples uh, uh, it doesn't pass the administrative uh, test, the duties test. But if you said, hey, uh, office manager, your job is to make sure everyone is supplied with everything they need, and they are the ones who go, go find the staples, compare against other vendors, local providers, negotiate the contract, and they independently decide on the quantities, frequencies, prices, that, that, that is kind of the, 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 the contrast that we're talking about, right? Correct, correct. Yeah. As an example, and obviously everybody has a lot more responsibilities, but yes, that that does give clarity to it. And then we move to the professional exemption. Again, this can trick up uh, employers also, and this is where your employee has an advanced knowledge through education, right? So we support a pharmaceutical organization and their chemists must have a PhD um in chemistry uh to you know meet the requirements of the position to actually you know function in the position um and so where some of the employers that we support get tripped up here is they'll say well you know mike is in marketing and he has his masters in human resources so i'm going to give him the professional exemption because he's got advanced knowledge. No, no, no. <laughs> that advanced knowledge has to be specific to the position that they're functioning in. So just because you have a PhD in philosophy, right? If that is not something that is on the job description that is necessary for the position that you are actually functioning in, then that is not going to meet the professional exemption, right? And those are your three white collar exemptions, the executive, the administrative, and the professional exemption. So that overtime rule says you need to decide exempt, you, do, you are not eligible for overtime uh, based on you meeting one of these three exemptions. And again, there are other exemptions but we're gonna focus on these today. And the other thing that they have to meet is the pay threshold. So hey, can I think- Can I stop you on the, before we go to pay threshold? Cause I think this is the, the, the most black and white area on the, on the professional one. So if, I'm a, if, I, if I own a construction company, a small construction company, and I just hired someone uh, and they've got their degree in civil engineering, um, but they spend the majority of their time on a on a on a backhoe or a skid steer uh, or or swinging a hammer doing the work themselves. That's what we're talking about here, right? <clears throat> Operating the skid steer does not require a civil engineering degree. So if they're spending most of their time doing that that work, despite the fact that they're highly educated and might do some civil engineering work, uh, that that would not pass the threshold. Is that correct? Um. I don't, I don't love that example, and I'm going to tell you why. Yeah, because he has the advanced degree in a position that he's functioning in. 
So civil okay. engineering is going to help him do his job. So if it was on the job description and or the ad, and what, what I encourage employers to say is civil engineering, masters in civil engineering. We're not, when we talk advanced knowledge through education, we're really not usually talking just, not just, I don't mean to minimize a college degree, but a college degree. We're talking masters, we're talking engineering certification, we're talking yeah. CPA, right? Um, th that's really what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, you know what I did, Mary? I, I co-mingled through, I co-mingled concepts from the duties test, right? I was co-mingling the 50% rule yes. Uh, yes. with the, prof the, the, the professional rule, right? And yes. you, really all you have to do is pass one of the three, not a combination of them, correct? Correct. Well, okay. no, no, you should be, you should try to, so professional uh, is, is different, right? Each of them have, you know, a two page um, summary from the Department of Labor that tells you what, when you meet these uh, exemptions. Sure. So yes, you, you muddled it a little bit for me. Um, and I'm guessing, yes. I'm guessing the entrepreneurs out there are thinking the same things and it's muddled for them too. So I'm really, I'm glad yeah. I muddled it so you could. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but so your example may be correct, but I think it's better to, to give that black and white. I have a philosophy degree and I'm doing, um, I'm doing engineering, right? Um, you know, so, and did the employer put this as a preferred or a mandated degree on the job description? That's how we have to back into it because it really is employer specific. Yeah. Right? And, just so, and just so I'm clear and more, more importantly, our audience is clear of the three duties tests, executive, administrative, and professional, I only have to pass one of those tests, correct? No, no. The, the, the exemptions are executive, administrative, and professional. The duties test has to be passed for all three of them for the That's individual really to, to have that exemption. And God. in addition to passing that duties test, the incumbent, the employee, must also pass the pay threshold, which is the next thing that we were gonna talk about. I'm really glad that I screwed that up because I think that there's a lot of <laughs> seriously. So, so there's the duties it's test. It's very confusing. That's why you know yeah. our our clients are like, oh, thank you, Mary, because it's it's very 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 confusing. So um, I want to keep it until it, until you tell me it's right to so make sure everybody listening is on the same page. So good. there's the primary duties test, which is the 50 percent 51 in California, but then there are three exemptions the executive, administrative, and professional that would be exemptions from that duties test, right? There are three white collar exemptions yep. and to be applicable, those exemption, the employee must pass number one, the duties test and number two, the pay threshold. Yeah, perfect. Okay. I, I, I think I think I've got it. Hopefully, everyone else listening has it now. Let's move on to pay threshold, which I think is a lot more black and white. Yeah, it is. And so, what also has to be in place 
is that that individual, so let's say we've decided Mike has the executive exemption, right? And truth be told, Mike, you have the exec, you would pass the executive exemption because you direct two or more employees, and you would also pass the administrative exemption. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, so let's just say that Mike is the uh, director of marketing, he passes the executive exemption. Now, I also have to make sure that I am paying Mike the pay threshold. So what employers need to think about, super easy. Everybody knows there's a minimum wage with, for right. your hourly non-exempt employees, right? Your employees yep. always get the better of the law. What's higher, your state minimum wage or the federal minimum wage? Federal minimum wage is still at $7.15 an hour. So most states, not all, most states are higher. Well, the state same is in effect for your executive, for your um, exempt employees, they must also be paid the minimum salary, either designated by the federal government or if your state is higher, then you need to meet that threshold. So right now, the federal um, salary minimum for exempt employees is 684 a week. And that increased back in 2020, January of 2020. Um, so annually that comes out to about 35,568. So that's what we're talking about today is that yeah. that pay threshold, which yes, went up in 2020, but before 2020, Mike, it hadn't moved in I think 10 or 15 years, right? Yeah. So what the, the mistake that the federal government made, if I can be so bold, yeah. is it should have been incrementally being increased, right? Um, to keep up with the, the incremental increases in minimum wage on the federal side. But for some reason, it didn't. So that's what we're talking about today is that that pay threshold for your exempt employees for the white collar exemptions is due to increase again that's what we're talking about now there's nothing imminent you know it was supposed to be done in april here we are in may hasn't been done um you know so if if i was a betting lady and i'm really not but i'd say it's gonna go through this year um but we want to talk about it with our employers because you need to prepare for things like I, I'm thinking maybe you and I have a conversation another day. It's, it's going through my head is as the the floor for exempt or non exempt has continued to rise, aka the minimum wage, but the floor for exempt has not. That creates there, there's not as much pay disparity between our between exempt and non exempt, uh, which creates a whole host of other I'd say cultural problems in our society that's probably a super interesting talk topic to talk about another day uh but but let's move on to more detail about what you're talking about here about what's changing specifically around the pay threshold right so so one of the important things um that you were you know sort of leading to is it it creates pay compression right so what's right. happening is my my manager 
might make 35 and change, right? The organization says, all right, so the minimum, uh, I'm in a state that doesn't have a higher minimum than the federal government. So I'm going to yeah. give them the, the minimum that I can, and I'm going to have them work 60 hours a week because they truly are exempt. I know I can get away with it. I'm going to pay them 35 and change a year. Well, if the yeah. minimum wage um, in my state did go up, Right. And you've got California and New York at $15 an hour and 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 Washington in some areas over $15 an hour. Well, $15 an hour roughly, roughly comes out to about 30,000. So now, you know, I'm inching up on my manager. I, I'm I'm at 30,000 and my manager's only making 35 and change. That's pretty close. And add to that, Mike. That if I'm working in a in an organization where I'm a, that non-exempt person making $15 an hour and I can get overtime, now I'm getting time and a half and I'm working 10 hours of overtime a week. Now I'm going to make more than my manager. Those yeah. are the issues that I need employers to look at and look at not just now because we're 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 trying to prompt you that that these changes may happen. But I also need you to uh, look at this every single year because something else um, that that we need to consider when we're talking salaries is pay equity, right? So that's another issue. Maybe we'll have another webinar on that. But there is a lot of rules, Mike, around pay equity, a lot of laws around pay equity. That could be a discrimination claim. So we have to make sure that when we have these pay compression issues, that you don't have a knee-jerk reaction, that you talk to professionals like us, that we help you do salary benchmarking to say, all right, clearly minimum wage went up, the hourly rate went up, um, but the salary didn't, right? So I do need to give raises to my managers. What's the right number, right? You cannot do that arbitrarily and you also, can't provide those to your managers arbitrarily, right? You're not going to give all your white males a 10% increase and, you know, the females or the people of color, the supervisors of color, nothing, right? And that may seem, you know, I'm, I'm making a gross exaggerated example, but it happens all the time. So this is what I need, every, you know, our employers to start thinking about, right? So a short payroll, mo most of our listeners are utilizing. You can do a pay report, right? It's got the person's name and the position. Look at all of those salaries and start making some decisions, right? Yeah. About how you're going to make some of these changes. And we have we have a lot of decisions to make here, right? And, and I'm going I'm to pause because I want to I want to try to bring this as, as viscerally real as possible. So um, easy to understand in some hypothetical big company scenario, right? Uh, but the the employer who's listening today that says, "Well, I'm not a racist. I'm not a bigot. I would I would never do that." Um, but if you're a small employer, let's say you've got uh, 20 employees uh, divided up against two teams with two supervisors. One who's been with you for 10 years, it's your trusted right hand, coincidentally is a white male, 
and you've got another excellent manager but less experienced, hasn't produced the results yet, maybe coincidentally is a, is female or a person of color, and you make some decision based on my trusted right hand, been with me for a long time, they deserve more, but they actually perform the same duties, the same job. This is where small employers, especially without HR expertise, just crush themselves because it's illegal, right? And because you're, you're not basing it on pay equity based on the job description. And and you might have the, it might, it might be an unintended, it might, it might, it might have been a malicious uh, a discrimination, but the fact is you're paying differently. The, 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 the outcome is the same. Am I thinking about that right? Except for one caveat, you are, but there's one caveat to the example that you <clears throat> gave. So when we make employment decisions, we always base them on business needs, all the way from how I write an ad to how I interview, to how I give pay increases. And the one thing that you said in that example was that person that was the right hand had over 10 years experience. Yeah. So it sounded like the other individual had less experience, right? So I am using factual information in that example to give that individual one, an increase. Don't forget that Title VII says you cannot make those de employment decisions negative or positive based on the protected categories, right? Color, creed, uh, sex, age, et cetera. You can make those decisions based on experience, based on performance, right? That's where I want my employers to focus. And so if you're saying to me that that individual, let's call him Joe, Joe has 10 years experience and Sally has three years experience. Joe should earn more because there is a business reason. We have factual evidence of why Joe should be paid more. Does that make sense? It it does. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say, and, and, and this is going to sound stupid because I'm going to use the word but, and you're the expert, not me. I, I think employers need to think about there's the law and how what you stay to stay compliant. There's also you can be sued for anything, right? I, I personally know an employer who uh, a small employer, but less than ten employees, um, and a salesperson slash sales manager. The title was the same. Left. Uh, they were more experienced. Uh, someone else got who was an existing sales rep got put in, into the job as the sales leader. Uh, happened to be a female. Um, and she was paid less than the person uh, uh, leaving, clearly demonstrably less years of experience. Uh, it didn't stop uh, the, the, the fact that there was a, a, a retaliation. Uh, it was a, it was a, it was a, a, a lawsuit for equal pay and then uh, ended up being in a retaliation suit that cost this company, even though they won, uh, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to to defend. So um, I guess where I, I guess probably where my brain is at is you're 100% right. You're the expert, not me, on the on the law. But as an employer, you have to be thinking about the optics of situations in addition to that. Is that is that fair? Is there any other correction or guidance you'd give me? 
No, I, I mean, I want employers to be aware of this. I want employers to understand all of the laws that we try to teach them. Uh, but what I also say to employers is, you know, if you're using good business reasons and factual information, one person has a higher degree, one person has 10 years experience, the other has three, then you can defend yourself in a court of law, right? And it, you know, the other thing when you talk about optics is definitely culturally, you know, we have to think about, you know, how does how does the culture, you know, look here, right? Because we cannot tell our employees that they are not allowed to talk about their pay. That right. is, you know, protected concerted activity. That's a condition of work. So our employees are allowed to talk about their pay, right? I'm allowed to say, Mike, how much money do you make? You don't have to answer me. Um, so they're, they know what each other makes, right? For, for the most part. So yes, you always have to be concerned about those things, but we also have to operate a business to the best of our abilities, right? And, and to do so, you do have to rely on some of those facts. You can never, and I will never tell an employer that even if you do everything right, can you protect yourself from a lawsuit? No, right. you know, that, that's impossible. I mean, you know, people get sued in the grocery store because somebody bumped into them with their grocery cart, right? So yep. it's a litigious society. You can't protect yourself against that. But what we try to do is help our employers so that if that came and that to fruition, that they could be defendable in a court of law because they did everything right. Yeah, yeah, that's really good advice, Mary. So you need to be aware, but I also, you know, always tell employers, you know, your hands should not be tied um, to operate your business. Uh, you can't look at laws that way, right? You know, you can't, when I, you know, we did sexual harassment last week and, and I usually do that training and say, I don't want anybody walking out of here and saying, I can never tell a joke ever again, right? That that's not the message when we talk about these laws. Um, but but you are correct. I want everybody to be aware. So so let's just talk more about you know you know the laws are changing, right? Yeah. Um, but and the reason is you know because you know the the Secretary of Labor you know Marty Walsh is saying you know these. These, this overtime pay is definitely too low, and 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 I would agree with that. And I think um, you know most of the employers on the call will agree with that. You know, but let's. I also want to carve out a caveat here that state overtime rules may differ. So let's just take a sidestep. That's we talked about federal. Let's take a sidestep and talk about some of the exemptions for our, uh, you know, uh, other states. And believe it or not, Alaska is in the is in the list here, where they have different overtime rules. Um, I'm sure you can guess California and New York are in there. Absolutely. Um, and so they have come out and said, you know, California threshold for the white collar exemptions, uh, and they do have, um, you know, thresholds for the size of the employer, right? 
So if, if in California, an employer has 26 or more employees, then those white collar exemptions, the minimum is 58,240 annually, right? Look at the difference, Mike. Federal is 35 and change. California is 58 and change. If you have fewer than 25 employees, then it's 54, still substantially higher than that yeah. federal minimum. And that's because they haven't raised it. I mean, they raised it in 2020, but but before that, they didn't raise it for 15 years. It is too low. I, I would agree. <laughs> Based on that, New York is, is very similar. New York um, differentiates it by the area, right? Because, you know, we have New York City. So New York City is a little bit different than Long Island. New York City is 58,000. Um, Long Island, Westchester is, is a little bit lower at 54 and change. And then upstate is even lower, which is 48, almost 49. So again, this is a lot for employers to, to keep up with. Um, you know, we support clients all over the nation. So it definitely keeps us on our toes. You know, it's something that we are very focused on. We know that these lawsuits are huge. And again, this is also a cultural thing. We need to pay people um, compliantly. We need to pay them, you know, what the state and federal government is mandating that we pay them. Um, and, and again, you know, in some of these, you know, states like New York, it's not all three white collar exemptions. It's just the executive um, and the administrative exemption that has the higher thresholds. So it, it, it gets very confusing <laughs> to say the yeah. least, right? Yeah, and I'm just thinking the math that you have to go through as an employer, there's a, and you said it perfectly that uh, you still have to run a business, right? And so um, I think most employers wanna pay their people as much as they reasonably can to attract and retain the great, great talent, right? There's also so much margin in a business. Some business models have a lot of profit margin. Some operate on razor thin margins and the, the money just doesn't exist to, to pay. So um, if you were, <laughs> the, the, the delta between the federal rate of call it 35-ish versus a California mid 50s, upper, upper 50s, um, the businesses simply couldn't afford to pay. And, and you, you, would, you would have to go to an exempt uh, non-exempt status for employees to uh, and convert them to hourly, but then you better not be making them work more than 40 hours a week, otherwise you're going to break the bank in overtime too. This is really complex for for an employer, isn't it? It's really complex, and I will add, you know, the obvious, state the obvious, that we're in an inflationary period. So yes, your employees are asking for higher salaries. I mean, I've never seen salaries. Um, like this entry level, you know, et cetera. Um, right. and, and to to sort of help with that, California now also added an inflationary rider so that that, that salary, you know, goes up with inflation, uh, which isn't gonna last forever, you know. Um, but yes, this is challenging for employers. Um, there, there's just no question. Um, and, so, you know, if we start to talk about what should employers do next, what you were talking about is an option, right? 
So let's just say that for, for those businesses listening to us today, you're not in New York and California, right? But you're saying, you know, maybe the federal government is gonna get close to these numbers. Do I think they're gonna jump this high? No, because you also need to realize that, that those New York thresholds uh, went up incrementally uh, within a four year period. And, and the federal government may do something similar, but I can tell you, Mike, those increases over those four years were not our usual 3% increases that most organizations give employees. It was higher than that. So yeah. when, when we work with employers, you know, we'll sit down and we'll say, okay, who do you have that's exempt, right? This is what they're making now. Let's just call it 40,000. And let's just say that the federal government wants it, wants it to go to 50, right? So yeah. obviously that's more than a 10% increase. Very few employers can afford that, you know, depending on how many managers you have, you know, that could be, you know, staggering. So yes, your option is to A, keep them exempt and raise the salary and you have to raise it when they say to raise it. If it is effective January of 2023, Mike, that increase goes in then. You can't say, I'm going to give it to them slowly. No, you cannot contract around the law. So that's that's option A, right? So let's let's talk about option A, which is again, how, um, you know, compression, right? So you know, you may have the senior manager making sixty thousand. And now the, the federal minimum goes up to 58,000, like it is in New York City. Now there's yeah. only a $2,000 difference. So you still have pay compression, right? At these salary levels when this increase right. goes up. Right. Right, and, and so there's a lot of factors. Can the business afford it? what is the pay compression that this is going to cause in other words am i going to have to give that mid-level manager the increase mandated by the federal government and give their manager an increase so that they're not making the same salary which has happened at some of my employers and let's talk about option b which you mentioned oh the employer says i really can't afford that I'm going to switch this employee to non-exempt. So just a little word here. When we talk about Fair Labor Standards Act, it is very rare, if ever, that you can't make somebody that may be exempt non-exempt, right? The federal government wants yeah. you to pay overtime. They want you to pay overtime to people who are due overtime. And, and, and that makes sense, right? Yeah. Right. So and, you know, don't forget when somebody's exempt. There is other benefits that go with being exempt. You get paid a salary, Mike. So if you have to run out an hour early, we should not be deducting anything less than full days from you. So if you run out at four o'clock instead of working your nine to five and you're exempt, you should still be paid your salary. OK, so there are some benefits to being exempt, obviously. So if we go with option B and we make Mike 
the director of marketing, non-exempt, what do you think Mike's going to think? What issues do you think I'm going to have? As you're, as you're saying this, I'm just having all these thoughts in my head. It's like when I entered the workforce, you know, some almost 30 years ago, I feel like there was definitely a level of prestige around being salary versus hourly uh, that has slowly evaporated uh, over the over a many year period. But there's still uh, a connotation in my head that I'm getting a demotion, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. It's a cultural thing, Mike. Number one, people like to get paid salary, right? Because I know that I'm going to make $500 a week, right? That there's a security there. Number two, now Mike has to sign in. You have to sign in your hours. Now, if I had my druthers, everybody would be signing in for hours, but I'm gonna get off my soapbox. Non-exempt, get paid for every hour they work, they must sign in through a sure payroll system, right? And we have all easy ways for employees to do it, but Mike never did that before. And now Mike has to sign in sign yeah. a timesheet if been, he it's forgets been, to do it 25 he, years since i had to fill out a time card right and that's right i'm gonna make you, it again what right that's right so now we're talking possible job dis dissatisfaction disengagement by that by that population that we said oh you used to be exempt now we're going to make you non-exempt oh and by the way no overtime right so yeah. There is so much, first of all, anytime we talk about changes um, for our employees, communication is key, 100% key. For, for when I have guided employers through this, I have said, you need to be transparent. You need to say, the Fair Labor Standards Act changed some regulations, and to meet those regulations, we're changing you to not exempt. Whatever, you know, I'm being a little flip, you know, a, a very positive, clear communication needs to be given with to these employees. You need to sit down ahead of time and explain to, to them why and how this change is happening, that it is no reflection on them, that is a change in the laws right? And, and expect that your employees know more than you know, right? Because they're going to look up the law and say, oh, instead of raising me to 58,000, you made me non-exempt. Right. You right. have to weigh these factors. It will be a, a, a hit on your culture if it is done incorrectly. But yeah, because those are your I, didn't, I didn't think about the other side of that coin. It's like, okay, maybe I'm not offended that I now have to sign in and sign out. Uh, but uh, it's going to look real obvious that the reason you did this is to to not have to pay me for what I now start to become believe that I'm worth, right? That's right. That's right. So it it employers need to start thinking about this, right? If you have exempt employees at that federal threshold, um, that 35 and change. Uh, you know, I want you to think about incrementally increasing them. Uh, and, you know, also, you know, you may want to start having them sign in and say, just how many overtime hours are they are they working? If they're not working any overtime hours, then making them non-exempt is not 
you know, yes, there may be a cultural uh, employee relations issue there, but it won't cost you more money, right? If your executives are working, your exempt employees are working 60 hours of overtime, right? Making them non-exempt is probably gonna cost you more money or maybe net net the same as raising their salary to whatever the federal government decides to raise it to. Right, right. So for my money, I would I would look at who is on that threshold, who's close to that, you know, you know, that 35 and change. The next thing I would do is those people that are close to it, I would start having them sign in and, and you can communicate that in a positive way. Hey Mike, at the end of the week, just tell me how many hours you did, right? If you don't want to make them go into, you know, their assure payroll and, and actually sign in, which would be my preferred way to do it. Um, so that you can start doing a cost analysis on, on what this is going to actually cost your organization. Because like I said, changing them to non-exempt and for them to get overtime uh, may end up costing you more than increasing the salary. So Mary, if I'm listening today, I'm a, I'm a, a an entrepreneur and I'm thinking, okay, this is not, this isn't great news for me, but it, I understand it. This is super helpful news and I will plan for it. They're probably screaming at their computer screen or their phone saying, well, how much is it going to go up? And I know you can't predict that, uh, you, you, you know, we, we're above our pay grade, but maybe can you set any expectations for how much you think this is likely to go up? Well, you have two states, California and New York, that are substantially higher than the federal minimum wage, right? Substantially. They're $20,000 and change more, right? Yeah. So, you know, I would say it's, you know, if they were to do it the way that makes sense and the way that New York did it, is it would go up a little bit in the next four years, Right, but I would predict at least a 5% increase over that 35 and change, at least, and it, and it may be more. But, yeah. but, you know, is it gonna be incremental 5% a year or 2% a year? I don't know, um, but it'll definitely be more. <laughs> and I think it'll be more than 3%. It would seem to me that, uh like a lot of contracts will tie pricing to a consumer price index kind of a thing. I'm wondering, it seems to me that the thing that got most out of step is that minimum, when min, minimum wage increased, there wasn't the corresponding uh, exempt overtime wage increase. And that's, that's, that's really where this thing got out of step. Do you, do you think that those two things will get married back up or is that, that's just, too wonky and too hard of a political question to answer. Uh, and you know, I don't know where they're gonna go, to be honest with you. But you know, minimum, the hourly rate is is seven fifteen, seven dollars and fifteen cents, um, and the salary is thirty five five. There is still disparity, right? So in my mind, minimum wage should be going up as well. Um, I haven't heard anything about that. Uh, but in my mind, that that only makes sense for minimum wage to go up as well. Now, I, you know, when when the legislators started talking about this, we weren't in such a high inflationary period, 
And now, of course, you you have a lot of analysts, uh, financial analysts, et cetera, Wall Street talking about, you know, a recession is imminent. And we know this, right? <laughs> History will show inflationary, recessionary, right, that, that they follow each other. So that might change things, right? right. So right. as it should, as it should. And, and in my mind, I think that's that may be what delayed things is inflation just just keep rising right um and then saying well we were going to increase it you know this amount maybe it should be this amount uh oh now there's going to be a recession so i i think there's so many factors and they're you know really trying to do to do the right thing by employers by employees etc i don't know what i'd do if i was in charge so so you know i i can't really guess what they would do but it will go up that's what employers need to focus on. They need to do um, a salary evaluation. They need to work with professionals. They need to look at who's at risk, how you're going to do it, and what the uh, cost analysis of doing that will be. So I think to kind of put a bow on this conversation today, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're not advocating for against. We're just trying to bring the best information we can to uh, growing companies, to entrepreneurs about uh certainly what the law says what we think the law changes will be to help you see around corners but also have a finger in the pulse culturally what's going on i mean uh we have these legal changes uh it's also super interesting to see uh you know such such small increases of uh minimum wage on the federal side you know increasingly states and local municipalities you know, there's a lot of $15 an hour minimum wage municipalities now, right? Um, that local governments, and then certainly just the marketplace itself, the supply and demand of labor, uh, when there's a labor shortage, uh, demand for labor is high and, and wages inevitably go up, especially in an inflationary period. There's so many, there are so many variables at play here that uh, between local and the marketplace that seems to be a counterbalance to some of these uh, things, that uh it'll, it's gonna be really interesting to watch this play out uh but no matter what everybody should we should be do more than just bracing ourselves for increases we should be planning for them because clearly the continuum is more and more rights more and more protection for employees so the pendulum is shifting from employer to employee, whether that's wages, whether that's overtime, whether that's uh, protections, whether that's discrimination, the pen pendulum continues to shift, and I don't see an end uh, uh, in sight for that. Uh, and so we, uh, employers just need to be seeing around those corners and, and planning for it. Is, is there anything else you want to add, delete, uh, uh, to, to close on this topic today, Mary? I don't think so. I think that was a good good summary, Mike, but, you know, I think, you know, the, the reminder that I want to tell employers is even if this change wasn't happening, we should be looking at salaries every year for pay equity reasons, for compression reasons, right? You might have to hire people to get people in the door at higher salaries now, which I'm pretty sure every employer will agree on. I, I a college grad that we were helping with career transition the other day made 91,000 you know, as a college grad, right? Pretty yeah. sure the engineers internal um, aren't making that much more at that organization, right? So yeah. this is a big deal. We should be looking at pay equity within our organization uh, every year, all the time. It should be part of our focus.
Yeah. All right. I, I'm going to transition. So it's, it was kind of jumping through my head today. Um, if you're a regular watcher of the show, Mary, Mary and I uh, have conversations pretty frequently. Um, uh, and I maybe today Mary corrected me more than ever before. And, <laughs> and this it's a good thing, Mary. I, I, I'm thankful for it because this is complex, and I and I kind of do this for a living, right? I've 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 owned and been partners in many small businesses. Uh, uh, we we support you know 80,000 customers, mostly all small businesses. This stuff is hard. It's really complex, uh, and most small businesses can't afford a 70 and 90, 110 thousand dollars SHRM certified HR professional on staff. And so, uh, you know that 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 is where uh, Assure comes in. It's where Mary's team comes in. So, uh, three different ways that we work with customers, very flexible to meet your model, uh, whether it's just HR support for managers to make sure you're compliant, get the playbook. Uh, excuse me, the, the, the employee handbook. So I'd say a playbook for HR uh, uh, on, on, a, on a very simple basis uh, or all the way up to total HR for all employees where we literally become your outsourced fractional HR department. Your employees are coming to us, to Mary's staff, uh, asking their questions. Hey, my boss did this, my manager did that. So-and-so uh, in the break room just said this, what can I do? That we're the ones handling all that HR stuff for you, as well as being on offense, helping to keep be, be proactive to keep you uh, compliant, to, to protect you uh, in, 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 in create a, a winning culture that you can attract and retain talent. So uh, all of these options at an absolute fraction, truly pennies in the dollar for whatever, whatever cost to bring someone in house. So if you're interested, uh, survey pops up at the end of this the, this uh, webinar. Uh, just let us know. We'd uh, happy to be put you in contact with someone from Mary's team. Uh, see if this is a fit for your organization. And with that, uh, if there's anything else we can do, this is what we do. We help uh, small businesses grow uh, by focusing on their core, by saving money, and staying compliant so that they can build winning teams. Mary, thanks for joining me again today. Thanks, Mike. My pleasure. Always, always enjoy it. Thanks. Thank thanks you. Everyone. Have a good day, everyone.